Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. This is the Blue White Breakdown, the premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live. Here are your hosts, Daniel Gallen and Dustin Hawkinsmith. Hey, welcome in. It's another edition of the Blue White Breakdown brought to you by Penn State Health. It's a bi week edition. He's Daniel Gallon. I'm Dustin Hockett We're just going to bring you up to speed on the items of the week coming off a 23 20 loss to Iowa, where there are still some fires smoldering um, coming out of that weekend, which Kirk Ferentz referenced uh, earlier this week on Tuesday. We are sitting here today. It's Wednesday. It's bye week. This is going to run on Friday. So we're, we're going to start with the disclaimer that any James Franklin comments specifically on the health of Sean Clifford, we will not be able to include in this week's show. But I think, Daniel, you can kind of you can give people the answer to that question in advance, probably. Yeah, James Franklin said it after the game on Saturday where we don't talk about injuries. So tonight, Wednesday night at practice, James is supposed to speak afterwards. He's probably not going to say anything uh, about about the injuries. You have to ask because sometimes he gives you something you know, about someone being out for the season or, or just a little bit of insight, but you know, it's the way that he runs his program. Uh, you know, it's college football. It's not like the NFL where there's injury reports and stuff. So, uh, you know, Franklin and Penn state elect to keep things close to the vest. And I think that when it comes to your quarterback, you're definitely going to keep it close to the vest. How would you characterize for fans that will be sitting here saying, why do you have to ask the question? I mean, pretty much it's just to put the ball into his court, right? You kind of, you can anticipate it, but the responsibility is this is a huge issue. You're kind of speaking on behalf of fans. The least you can do is just try to make an attempt to get whatever he wants to give on that issue. Yeah. And you want things to be as up to date as possible where the answer might not change, but instead of saying, he said this two weeks ago. You can say he said this last week. Gives a little bit of a timeline. It gets a a record uh, of what kind of a timeline, what people are saying. And then, you know, it always comes down to it. You never know. You never know when you're interviewing someone. And this is just in general. This isn't specific to Franklin. But if you go into an interview, sometimes you know what someone is going to say. Sometimes they surprise you. So you got to ask. It doesn't always go well. You don't always get something that you need. But... Here we go. And I did a subscriber mailbag on uh, on Monday and I had some interesting responses from people where, you know, they said, we want we want James to make an exception. This is this is a big deal. We want to know. We need to know. So that's it's an interesting dynamic where sometimes people are are like, well, why are you always asking about the injuries? He's not going to say anything, but you never know. Sometimes you get some insight. Sometimes there's something to glean. But this is the story going into the bye week. So. We're not going to see this team this weekend. We're going to go you know, a week between seeing them on the practice field. So 
got to lock things in where things are today on October 13th, 2021. Yeah, I think just in general with Franklin, with the depth chart and with the injuries, you know, these are he's following rules that allow him to do that. You come from an NFL beat having covered the Philadelphia Eagles where there's structure in place. There's there is, you know, mandates in place to release certain information. Those things do not exist in college football. I get where he's coming from. I think um, fans and media people alike can sometimes get frustrated by that. But, you know, it's his prerogative at this point in time. And it's his program. You still have the responsibility of asking. One thing I know, you know, we, we won't hear much, I'm assuming, on Clifford. I do suspect that later this evening, again, we're sitting here Wednesday. You might not be listening to, to this until Friday. Just about the booing of injuries at Iowa. I got to think somebody's going to ask that question again of Franklin. He talked about it after the game. Kirk Ferentz talked about it on Tuesday and said basically um, – I think he implied that he sort of believed that stuff was happening too. And that he believed that his fans may have quote unquote smelled a rat with some of these injuries. What's just your position on this issue entirely. I personally find it laughable that a Penn state defense with probably eight or nine guys who'll be drafted uh, in the NFL would resort to this type of thing. But I get, I give that there was injuries with more frequency than we're used to seeing uh, in that game. Obviously, if you're James Franklin and Brent Pry, your number one strategy to slow down Iowa is to make sure that Arnold Evichetti and Jaquan Brisker uh, miss some snaps here and there. That's what you want to do going into a game like this. That Brilliant. That's how you're going to come out on top. But I don't know. I mean, while we were there, I was kind of like, oh, this is a little weird that they're that they're booing this. That Iowa offense did not look good. There wasn't really anything that I was kind of like, oh, they need to slow this down. You know, I don't really care about the fans. They can do what they want. Obviously, fan behavior should be better, but I don't get too worked up over it. You know, that crowd was having a lot of fun. It was a great environment. It's not it's not the best look. I mean, the more the more kind of embarrassing thing is when you looked at some of the 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 video of the special teams coach from Iowa uh, and kind of what Ferentz said. I think that that's kind of the the worst look. Obviously, the fans, fan, fandom is inherently irrational. So there's going to be some ugly things like this that come up. I wish there wasn't, but I don't necessarily get too worked up over that. But I mean, it was something that I kind of thought that it wouldn't extend into this week. I kind of thought that Franklin would kind of get the last word on it on Saturday with just kind of what he said, where that he didn't appreciate it. He didn't really think it was appropriate. Um, and then I was kind of surprised uh, by Ference's comments. You know, I would assume that he would just say something. You can just say something along the lines of our fans are passionate. Sometimes they react to things and you can leave it at that. But I don't really necessarily agree with the implication there. Um, I just read uh, Ben Jones from statecollege.com just wrote uh, a column about it, his opinion. And he pointed out that in the Wisconsin game, Jaquan Brisker went down three or four times exited the game. Arnold Evichetti went down. A lot of guys were in and out of that game too, because it's so physical and the Wisconsin fans never didn't boo any of that. So I don't necessarily know what kind of the impetus uh, for that was, but I mean, it was people were, were juiced up for that game. People were excited and it just kind of, it only has to happen once for kind of that, that's a kickoff. But I, I saw other people pointing this out and I kept kind of forgetting it because when you're in the press box, sometimes you lose a little bit of the the elements, but it was really warm on Saturday. When I went out, when I got out there, I was overdressed 
for the weather. I had a sweater when it was just kind of short sleeve weather. Um, we were down on the field pregame. It was really warm. They had the fans going on the sideline. They had a lot of water, a lot of hydration stations. So I think there's probably some cramping going on that at this point of the year, you're not really expecting to see. And then I think after the game, Arnold Evacetti was asked about it and he said, oh, I was actually hurt. I actually had to leave the game. So it's a bye week. So it's kind of a double-edged sword because this, this means that we won't, it won't, when we should be talking about the next game and so we're talking about this, but at the same time, we don't have the next game to move on to. So maybe, hopefully it'll get put to bed tonight, but uh, Bob Flounders pointed out that uh, Iowa makes its next trip to Beaver Stadium in, in October, 2023. If anyone wants to mark their calendars. I think people, I think people are, I mean, there, there's a, a uh, element between the fan bases right now. And that's, what's making this thing linger a little bit. And then Kirk Ferentz really could have made it go away, but it's, I, I, I kind of believe that, uh, Iowa program wide and the fan base, you know, what I would characterize as a detachment from reality is also kind of a building thing of, of saying, you know, the nation hates us or the na- we're, we're not getting enough respect, you know, and I think they're embracing that part of it. And again, my personal belief is that they're going to lose between now and any Big Ten championship weekend. You know, I don't, I don't see it. There's not a juggernaut on their schedule, but these guys better keep bringing that turnover juice and they better kind of keep riding that we're getting to your backup quarterback wave because there's just not a ton more to it than that. The margin for their, for their win against Penn State was so slim. I mean, the fact that Sean Clifford had thrown two interceptions and Penn State is still winning by two touchdowns. And one of those interceptions was really, really bad. That first one, it's it's very cliche and kind of try to just be like, oh, well, Sean Clifford doesn't get hurt. Penn State wins, which obviously he got hurt. Penn State didn't win. So it's kind of moot. But I think when you look at that Iowa team, it's really hard for me to see them as kind of a a national contender, I guess. I I appreciate uh, what they've done, the fact that they're winning, the way that they're winning. That defense is really entertaining, uh, really interesting to watch. Spencer Petras as a quarterback is not the most entertaining quarterback to watch, but I agree with you. I think that they're living on the edge so much, and you know how these Big Ten West games kind of get where it's just kind of sloggy slugfests where kind of if that turnover luck isn't hitting it's it can be hard to win a game uh, an Iowa Penn State rematch an Iowa Ohio State game uh even Ohio- Iowa against Michigan or Michigan State I don't necessarily see that going well for the Hawkeyes even with that defense and so it's just I would rank them number 2 in the country if I was a voter, if I had, you know, in the AP poll, I'm fine with them being number two. But I think when you look at kind of the the grand scheme of things is that water finds its level and that will not have Iowa number two when all is said and done. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Now, um, looking at the quarterback dynamic with Sean Clifford and Taquan Roberson, one of the criticisms in that game was, you know, maybe not quite the level of investment in the development of Taquan Roberson going back to, you know, previous seasons as well as maybe behind the scenes at practice. And I think that's probably something that James Franklin and Mike Hirsich would own, that they put a lot of eggs in, in the basket of Sean Clifford staying healthy. And, you know, it is a tough, it's a tough dynamic to manage as a coaching staff what is afforded to them now without knowing any you know having any clarity on Sean Clifford is that 
there's time for Sean Clifford to get healthy. There's also time to rectify that mistake and really work on a Taquan Roberson offense. Probably both of those things will be going on over the next two weeks. And then it's Illinois coming out of the bye. So you do probably have some time if, if you need to rest Clifford additionally. It's, it's tough because I, I don't want to overlook Illinois uh, because it is a Big Ten team, obviously, any given Saturday. But Illinois has not been playing well recently. So even if they don't have Clifford in that game, I think would still be a pretty big favorite. But, you know, someone I got a mailbag question that was, what is the strategy moving forward at quarterback? And I think it's pretty simple. If Clifford is healthy, he plays. If Clifford isn't healthy, Roberson plays. That's pretty much what it boils down to. But I think it would be interesting to see what this Penn State offense would look like if you give Roberson a full week of preparation, if you go in and the scheme is tailored a little bit more to his strengths. We saw him do some good things with his legs. Obviously, the chemistry on some of the downfield passing wasn't there. And you can maybe just chalk that up to jitters. You can maybe just chalk that up to the situation. But I think it would be interesting to see what a Taquan Roberson-centric offense looks like because I mean Cliff Sean Clifford is pretty mobile he can move he was making a lot of plays with his legs but it's it's a little bit different different style runner that would be interesting I mean I think when they put Roberson in on Saturday I think it was the right move to basically keep the offense exactly the same when you're at that juncture you're that far into a game in that kind of environment with you know there's 11 guys on the field you don't want to change things up suddenly. But I think that I don't necessarily, I'm not smart enough to know what those subtle tweaks might look like, but I think that it would be pretty interesting to see what a, you know, what this Taquan Roberson Penn state offense under Mike Yersich might look like, whether or not we'll actually see that or when we could see that, who knows, maybe we'll find out at 1159 uh, AM next Saturday. But I think that that's kind of something to keep in mind. You know, the blessing I think here is that now, you know, assuming we're not going to um, see Sean Clifford in practice for at least uh, a a significant amount of time, the blessing is that Taquan Roberson at least will get first team reps in practice that he, he wasn't getting before. And that can maybe help him get to that next level of his development. This is the Blue White Breakdown. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Have questions? Visit us at cureleaf.com or stop in to see us at any of our 12 locations. Let's talk medical marijuana and let our confidence become yours. Six games to go here, three of them against top 10 teams, right? Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State. What is your thought just on the second half of this season? You know, I know that the Sean Clifford issue is looming and you can't really forecast, but just the idea of those three teams, you know, Michigan and Michigan State are both unbeaten. They're both in the top 10, but, you know, you can wonder what exactly they are. Ohio State is getting a little bit more buzz as being more Ohio State-like now with C.J. Stroud coming into a rhythm. Um, What's what's your thought about Penn State navigating all that and navigating it to a point where, you know, you, you put, posted the bowl projections, the updated ones from national people earlier this week. Nobody's saying college football playoff right now, but I think the expectation is that you're looking at definitely a 9-3, and 10-2 and two type team uh, with these games left. 
Yeah, I mean, the back half of the schedule from where we stand right now is is pretty pretty intense when you look at it on on paper. Obviously, it's going to change. You know, there was a chance that all four, if Penn State had pulled it out, all four of these teams would have been six and zero at this point of the year, which is pretty pretty wild uh, to be kind of. I mean, the Big Ten has five teams in the top ten. It's it's pretty wild, but it's not going to stay that way. There's going to be some cannibalization as we kind of move forward, and you just have to look in two weeks or three three weeks when Penn State plays at Ohio State. Michigan, Michigan State is the same day. Obviously, the season finale. Ohio State plays Michigan. Penn State plays Michigan State. Then in early November, uh, Ohio State plays Michigan State. So this is all going to sort itself out one way or another. You know, there's a good chance that maybe two of these three teams are still in the top ten when Penn State plays them, just because of how things are going to to even out. But you know, you look at it on paper, and it's it's going to be fun. Uh, that's one way to put it. I think that the schedule kind of has been evening out a little bit too. When you look at Rutgers and Maryland look good early, but now there was that train of thought where it was like, Ooh, these, these teams could give Penn state some trouble, but you look at it now, that's obviously still a possibility because there's some competency there for both those teams, but it's not, doesn't seem as, as tough as it did when they were all, you know, three and oh, four and oh, that type of thing. Uh, you know, projecting again a little bit into the second half, the red flags, as you put it, the offensive line, the running backs, there's time now to do a, a quite a bit of self, self-scouting and maybe make some make some real progress in those areas. What is the progress, do you think? You know, I, I like I, I do think that, you know, everybody involved with the with the run game shoulders some some burden here. What, what do you think the fix is there? I wish I knew what the fix was because I'd look pretty smart. You just got to kind of make make some tweaks, see what you can do to free some of these running backs up. Maybe you decide that you're just going to ride one running back, get him into the rhythm, push through a couple possessions where a runner isn't is only getting three or four yards a carry. But if you keep doing it, he's in the rhythm. Maybe he can break off a couple 20 yarders. Maybe you do that. You know, I don't offensive line play is something that is just so intricate and there's so so much nuance to it that I don't necessarily know what the quote unquote fix is. We've seen them rotate at left guard a decent amount through these first couple of weeks. I don't know if there needs to, if there's a potential personnel change anywhere else. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard because the last time we saw this team was at Iowa where it was a bit of a fluke where everything that was going wrong could go wrong. You were in a hostile environment. You just couldn't really pull out of the skid. So I think that it's, you can't really have that recency bias, but I think that you have to make some adjustments. Um, Obviously the health of John Lovett and Devin Ford is something to think about. Both of those guys left uh, at Iowa with injuries and didn't return. And both of them didn't have like, visible injuries they weren't the guys who were down after plays they were just guys who just never came back so i think that there's there's a lot of questions but the running game is is interesting and i i think that that might be an area where taekwon roberson could help because i think that even though sean clifford is is a good runner i think that roberson commands a little bit more more respect he's a little shiftier and I think that maybe that is something where when he's in the backfield next to say Noah Kane, suddenly 
two linebackers aren't watching Noah Kane. One linebacker is watching Noah Kane. One linebacker is watching Taekwondo Roberson. So I think maybe there's the chance that that could open some things up, but I don't know. I mean, the running game kind of going in, it's, it's been, uh, you know, we were talking about surprises this year. The running game has been one of the surprises in, in the negative uh, connotation of that. Really wonderful segue because I want you, you wrote something about the non negative surprises earlier this week, and there's been a bunch of them. You kept your list to six players, but I think you could easily have gone to about 15 with what things have been pleasant surprises. A lot of them on the defensive side of the ball. What has been, you know, one of your one or two of your biggest surprises so far? Performances that you didn't quite see coming? Yeah, I mean, I guess we can start with Sean Clifford. I think that's the big one. Where if you were kind of talking about a a five and one Penn State team in October and all the conversation is, oh no, the offense is in trouble if you lose Sean Clifford. If you said that to someone a year ago, I mean, they would be like, wait, what? What are we doing? What what's happening? Um, so I think it, it kind of starts starts with Clifford. Mike Yersich has obviously put him in good places to succeed. Clifford has obviously taken advantage of his opportunities. And I think kind of what we talked about earlier that you've, you kind of saw the growth in the Iowa game before he went out where he threw the two interceptions, but he bounced back nicely. The offense kept moving. They were winning despite those mistakes. So I think that that, that kind of was the the biggest surprise on the offense. And then I think on the defensive side of the ball, I think the easy big surprise is Arnold Evacetti where Temple transfer, you heard good things in the spring, but there is a difference between the AAC and the Big Ten. There's a difference between Temple and Penn State. You weren't exactly sure what it was going to look like until you actually saw it. And nine tackles for loss, four sacks. I think he has a sack in every Big Ten game this year. He's always in the backfield. He always kind of seems to be in the right place. You see him making the hustle plays downfield. I think that that's someone who has been a kind of... uh a bit of a revelation where you know you bring them in there's some depth issues at defensive end and the thought process is kind of like well maybe he'll be solid maybe he can kind of fill the role be kind of your your solid starter and suddenly he's an impact player and I and then on the other side with Jesse Lucetta who has four and a half tackles for loss him making that switch from linebacker to defensive end that's also been huge Yeah, you know, you look at the three maybe biggest question marks on the Penn State defense, those two defensive end positions, both depth and starter quality and having Jesse Lucchetta do. I mean, these two guys are, you know, one of the better one, two punches at defensive end in the entire country. And that's it's um, both against the run and the pass. They're strong and physical and disciplined and aggressive against the run game. And you can see what they do on the stat sheet in, in the passing game. And then the other part was just that second starter at safety in Jair Brown, who I was laughing at Gus Johnson. I don't know if you watched the replay of the game, him calling him Yair Brown with a soft, with a soft <laughs> J. But uh, three interceptions, and you can see his ability to roam and make plays in a deep portion of the field. The three biggest question marks are all here, I think, on your list as three of the biggest surprises. And, you know, for that Penn State defense, it's been huge. The defense has just been, I don't want to call the entire defense a surprise because on paper you saw it and, and the talent was there, but it just played so well. Uh, I have the stats up in front of me. Number eight in yards per play, number five in scoring defense. 
number six in yards per pass attempt, number 19 in yards per carry. It's just been a very solid defense. And I think James Franklin kind of mentioned it after the Indiana game where the off the defense isn't necessarily your, your suffocating defense. It's not Georgia, which has so many five stars back there that they just kind of choke the life out of you. Penn state does let you move the ball a little bit. It's that Ben don't break. They let you get some yards, but they're not going to let you score. They're going to make the, they're going to make those big plays. They're going to get those red zone stops. As we saw after that first Sean Clifford interception, Obviously, when you do that, you need to get picked up by the offense a little bit, which Penn State didn't do against Iowa because the defense broke at kind of the the wrong point of the game with that long touchdown, where Mm -hmm. if you're playing Ben don't break, but you're not getting anything from your offense, you really can't break. And that long pass, beautiful play. One of my favorite play designs where you roll out, throw back across the field. Love it. Uh, but that was kind of the the break that really did Penn State in. And it was just bound to happen. You know, they lived on that side of the field. They were one play call away at all times from doing that. And I made the point earlier in the week that if, you know, if Penn State's offense could have gotten two, three, four first downs along the way, and I was, instead of being at Penn State's 44, I think in that situation, mm-hmm. if they're at their own 35, you know, Nico Reganey doesn't get in the end zone probably. And there's a decent chance that Iowa doesn't get in the end zone on that drive. Just be, just by the way that things were going in those tight scoring situations before should have, would have, could have, but Penn state's defense was in a bad spot for 30 plus full minutes, almost consecutively between Tory Taylor's punting and the Penn state offense, not being able to get much going a lot, a lot, a lot was asked of them. And they, with the exception of that play, that one play, I feel like they delivered and and then some as they've been doing, you know, all year long. And to your point, just about, you know, last year versus this year, some of the big issues last year were one, uh, tackling and the fundamentals and 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 not letting guys get extra yardage after the ball is in their hands, making the play in space, all that stuff. And that was a big issue last year that is not an issue at all this year. When when guys make a catch or when guys are are getting the ball in the flat where they're supposed to go down, they are generally going down. And I think communication, not just last year, but in, in the previous year or two before that as well, communication and pass coverage, there were a lot of breakdowns before. And I think there's just a little bit more urgent, maybe a lot more urgency to clean up the fundamentals and to communicate and get in the right positions. And the, I think the experience and the leadership in the middle of that defense certainly helps, but it's a brand new unit for all those individual surprises you mentioned. And I think just also with the urgency that they're playing with. Yeah. It's been a really fun group to watch uh, through the first, through the first half of the season. And you, you hope for the Penn state offense's sake that, that the defense can, can keep this up. But going back to Saturday's game real quick, you mentioned that that, that punting performance by Tory Taylor was, was really something else. And I think it's the most big 10 thing that's ever happened to me where the big 10 announces the, the conference players of the week. And I, I feel offended that the Iowa punter got snubbed from being the special teams player of the week, because every single punt just inside the 10, just down there, putting Taquan Roberson back up against the wall. Uh, it was just something else. It just, there was, I mean, that, that just suffocated Penn state. And obviously Jordan Stout had a great game himself, but when you're in that situation, you kind of, he has that big leg, but he 
but you have to still have to kick it within your coverage. And it was a windy day and it was just kind of something was going to happen at, at that point. When, when you put that much pressure on it, you're going to find a hole. You're going to find a crack. There's going to be a rupture. I don't think there's any better way to wrap up a Penn State Iowa discussion than on a punting note. So we'll leave it at that. Bye week comes at a pretty good time here for Penn State. Week off now. Illinois comes to town for a noon kickoff on ABC next weekend. Penn State's got a little time to get healthy. Iowa fans have a little bit more time to boo maybe another opponent or be offended that the nation doesn't respect them enough. Well, maybe all this stuff will come full circle. But for now, that's it for this edition of the Blue White Breakdown. We've got plenty more coming up the rest of the season. Big second half of the year coming. You can follow Daniel here on Twitter at Daniel JT Gallon. Everything we do, podcast, writing, video, penlive.com slash Penn State football. And you can locate all of our Blue White Breakdown podcasts, including the ones that Bob Flounders and Dave Jones do on Alexa, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and on YouTube as well. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Blue White Breakdown, and we'll see you next time. This is the Blue White Breakdown.